0: You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are humbled today to be joined by Ben Hobson. He's an English and music teacher, author of To Become a Whale, Snake Island, host of Words and Nerds spin-off, Burgers, Beer and Books, and most recently, the author of The Death of John Lacey, an Aussie historical crime fiction story set in the wild outback. Ben, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much.
1: I am extremely pleased to be here. I'm currently on the road. uh, So for people listening, I am in a little motel room in casino which is the beef capital of Australia and it's very uh, exciting I'm very excited I'm this is the second day of the tour and can I say to you guys I'm already feeling a little lonely oh no <laughs> <laughs> I'm used I'm used to having my pets and my my children and my wife and things like that so it's always very noisy so just to have quiet it's very strange my my mind doesn't know what to do with it anymore
0: yeah it does you you do get used to those habits I suppose I wanted to get into the story here because the novel is a bit of a love letter to the Western genre with an Aussie Mm. outback flavor. What inspired you to marry the inevitability of the gunshot felt at the beginning of the story with the inescapable brutality of our own nation's past? Geez, what a
1: big question! Right from the top, normally there's some getting to know you sort of stuff. Um,
2: <laughs> we, we can't buy you dinner. I'm sorry, no, we, yeah, no, we got to skip yeah, all that. Beef, <laughs>
1: beef, you know, beef capital is expecting some steak. Um, look, it, it was a very, very slow evolution. I'm not a person who I think sets out to write something and then that thing is the thing I produce at the end of it. It was just very slowly sort of investigating all these things. One of the biggest jumping off points um, in the Western genre for me was probably my dad. Uh, He used to give me Louis L'Amour books. Um, If you're very familiar with Westerns, Louis L'Amour is kind of the, he's a very popular Western author and he just, maybe he's a bit schlocky. I don't know if that's a word you would use, but I loved it. Yeah, it's definitely schlocky good. Um, He's awesome. I love Louis L'Amour, but The main thing that got me into writing um, The Death of John Lacey was John Lacey himself, who was really inspired by um, Daniel Plainview from the movie There Will Be Blood, which is probably my favourite film of all time, which is no small say. Um, And I wanted to write about a person who was okay with being morally corrupt. All the characters I've ever written are real extensions of me um, in that, you know, I try to imagine what it would be like to make mistakes and to sort of have be backed into a, a corner. I like that sort of uncomfortable feeling of what would I do in this situation and not really knowing the right way forward. I like characters like that. But this guy, John Lacey, he doesn't really seem to have any kind of conscience and he just takes what he wants. And he was just such an interesting character. So the first part of the book was the part written sort of centered around him and his, you know, his rising, his conquest of, um, the prospecting in Ballarat. So I would say he's the main jumping off point. But then what I found was he was just such an awful person. I wanted some, some good people to sort of stand up in opposition to him, which is, you know, I guess reckoning with that part of our history, right? Like he was sort of what represented the most awful parts of Australian history, um, and I hope there were some good people who sort of stand up against that sort of history. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I always say that, that it's so important to have a good v- villain, regardless of whether John Lacey is the, the, the protagonist or the juderagonist, however we want to classify him, like he's the, mm. the bad guy, because then the the good guys, the heroes of the story can can shine even brighter. You know, you got that that mm. balance there. Now, in in your novel, so many of the the family-oriented relationships, you know, there's a lot of brothers and and wives and fathers. Uh, A lot of these relationships are uh, toxic at best. Mm -hmm. Why why is it important that we looked at bonds outside of our blood relations or maybe complementary to those relations in order to overcome adversity?
0: (sighs) You like big but questions, I, Ben? I we got plenty like, more. No, this is good, man. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> flex, no, I
2: flex. flex I, I will say, flex. Don't we write too many of the questions? I think, or, or more than usually would. So, <laughs> no,
1: these are great questions. Know. Know. So, sorry to to sum up your your question was really about how when we're in, uh, we can't really choose the people that we're related to and who we're born yeah. into family situations with, but we can choose who we align with outside of family, um, and why I d- I think that's important. Um, can I be completely real with you? I don't know whether I do think that's important. Sometimes I, sometimes I really feel like in fiction, it's, it's very difficult to capture a kind of messy, um, relationship with family without it feeling very toxic. Um, I just think when we're reading, it's very heightened. And I certainly don't think that all relationships are toxic, but I just think that everyone's capable of making errors and making mistakes given their backgrounds. I try to have empathy for all the people in my stories especially which um you know I've had a few reviews that say they're just very dark my books but I really don't ever feel like I look at look at my characters with a sort of a judgmental eye. I always feel like I have some degree of maybe not John Lacey but <laughs> beyond him I always feel like a degree of empathy for the characters. So a character like Ernst, I think I think his relationship with Joe is kind of the most important part of who he is. Um, I think that he his 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 united brotherhood with Joe, I think that's what gives him strength. And in the end, you know, not to give too many things away. I think that's the thing that really powers him through to make a good choice. Um to, well. Again, it's all shades of morality, isn't it? It's a good yeah. choice given the circumstances.
2: They're all trying to make the best decisions that they can. Like I personally, I really enjoy the the opening chapters with the, the Montague family because mm. you kind of, you present uh, the, the mother Isabella as kind of the bad guy at, at first. Let me be very clear. At first, she's kind of the bad guy. She's irrational. She's racist. And the yeah. father is a bit more understanding, but then you find out, why he's so understanding of the indigenous tribe that lives just over the hill that he seems to be visiting frequently and why she's so afraid of them. And, yeah, you know, she, they're all very tragic characters, right? And that's yeah. where that kind of moral dubiousness comes from, I felt.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it was, you know, and she was very difficult to write because it was from Ernst's perspective. So, I certainly didn't want her to write her as just a a victim and just a one-note, shrilling, sort of shouty kind of character. So it was important to show that she was feeling trapped herself. A lot of the people in the book, I think, who have any degree of say over or choice over their lives tend to be the men in the book. The white men in the book tend to be the only ones who get to say, Um, I choose to do this like they have a type of agency whereas a lot of the other characters I think get their their idea of what they'd like to do just robbed from them without any of their say which is you know very sadly true for a lot of relationships around the world right Um, but being said though you know I did try to paint Edwin with a little degree of empathy I don't know whether I was I don't know what I feel about that man um to me we're not well when I'm writing, it's to me, it's me really thinking about what I think about these people, you know. I've never tried to judge. Like I said, I just don't like books where the the characters are being judged. It just feels very mustache twirly.
0: Yeah, well, I think one of the interesting things that you've sort of done in answering this question is you kind of deal with something that Herds and I were talking about earlier this week, the idea that authors have to have opinions that they have to share with people (laughs) uh when when (laughs) they sort of ask these sorts of questions whereas the thing that I really like that you've done here is that you've said all right well here's your question and here's the question that I'm asking to deal with that question (laughs) yeah and I really I live really love that way of like framing the idea and also how like parallel that is to some of the things in the book like for example a lot of those familial bonds that we're talking about are very enabling of destruction or an excuse for an enabling of destruction yeah And it was interesting to me that the book is sort of framed around being a book about brotherhood when normally you might expect to be about the importance of family values. Whereas I guess you're more angling towards that question of, okay, what does that mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point, man. Like I, I often think about my books that way. I often think when, when I'm writing, sometimes I'm not, I'm doing my best to not think. Mm. Um, Which sounds terrible. And please don't put that <laughs> as a soundbite or something somewhere. <laughs> where I-, I think <laughs> we're contractually <get> attempt-
2: <laughs> obligated to. Uh- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, no, it's like I'm always trying to get out of my own way. And I feel like a lot of the time when I have written from a place of trying to put on my deepest thoughts into a thing and really investigate a thing with all the ways that I think about a subject it just comes out labored and gross and I'm trying to put on airs, like I'm trying to use fancy words where simple words would do. The way I write it is much more I try to, and I, this is the way I think about it now, I'm trying to improvise and it's much more like I'm wearing each of the characters and it's just me sort of trying to act it out and it's like I'm just seeing it unfold. And if I can get to the place where these characters are acting in a way that feels very natural, I don't certainly don't think they're, you know, separate from me. They're all extensions from me, but it's me trying to to feel the way the characters would would feel and act in a naturalistic way. So that's where I get to that point where I'm not trying to certainly not say things about the characters. I think there's some deep ideas in this book. I think um, towards the later section, especially Gilbert is one who um, does a lot of the thinking and I, he's sort of stuck in a, in, a, in a position like this. So to me, he's sort of the one where I put a lot of thought into, you know, framing um, those sort of conflicts within him. A lot of the time, it's just me watching these people act and um, without judgment. And I think readers are the people who should be thinking about these things, right? And that's not my job. Right? My job is to get out of my own way, and present a story and I just you know I don't like books that are very didactic and tries to I just feel one note you know and just yeah. I feel like uh you know if I, if you're telling me to not like this character I'm always in the background
0: like ah, oh, I don't like being told not to like someone like or the or the opposite where S.S. Van Dyne comes along and insists that his main character is likable and you're like no that is the most punchable person I've ever <laughs> read <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it's sort of, its really special about writing, man, and reading—is so many takes. Like, I—I I remember writing um, my very first book, which is *To Become a Whale*, which is this—this this little kid he's very sensitive, and he has a father. Again, talking about toxic related. the father's trying his best, but he's a 1960s dad who is a whaler, so he's—he's he's not the most kind man, if you know what I mean. I went to a book club once, and this—this this man sat across from me, and he just said, "I don't understand." Why you wrote such a pussy? <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, he's just a wimp. Why doesn't he just Why doesn't he just stand up to his father? I'm like, oh, okay. So it was such an interesting thing for me because I was like, ah, oh, you've. When people read and then they they have their thoughts on it, it's much more to me a comment on on them than it is on the person writing the book. It's kind of special. Everyone reads it their own way, you know. It's a bit telling that if you, you were talking about how.
2: Quite, quite a few people come away from this book thinking it's quite dark, and honestly, I, I definitely had the same impression. I, I do acknowledge that there's these shades of grey and, you know, we're, we're writing real people, but mm. that was definitely my initial reaction. Mm. Um, now, in, in crime fiction, we often name money, riches as the least interesting motivator for murder. Uh, In John Lacey, we see the title character motivated mainly by gold, but it's framed by his desire to be better than his father. And this is something that the Montague brothers can relate to. How do the familiar bonds in in your narrative elevate the primal drive that many of these protagonists share the drive to be rich?
1: You know what? Like, can I be real? That never entered my mind. I just, when I was writing um, John Lacey, he was, he had a brother and he just appeared as on these the first little sentences they're riding on horseback into the town was just this brother relationship um I think there's a different sort of because there's two sets of brothers I think the first set of brothers I think Ernst is less smart than John Lacey I think he's not a very bright man in a lot of different ways he's very desperate and He ends up being quite a violent person, quite, what's the word I'm looking for, impulsive, which ends up being quite destructive to his relationship with his brother Joe, which I find very interesting too. I feel like his love is a bit more honest because it's less studied, like it's less manipulated, like he's just purely himself with his brother. So yeah, to me, those two are just desperate to survive, but John Lacey I think the only person in the world he cares about is his brother because that's the last person he has left, but I don't think he's motivated to help gray. I think, I think in his mind, he's sort of, he wants to help gray become who gray wants to be, but he also want, doesn't want what gray wants. Gray sort of is much more of a, uh, he wants a home. He wants a family. He wants, you know, he wants this familiar type of Australian life. Uh, mm, whereas. He wants John stability, Lacey, right? Yeah. John Lacey's sort of, There's something in him that just doesn't seem quite there, which he seems proud of as well. Like he's not like the rest of these people running around desperate. He knows what he's going to do. For me, it's like Grey is the last little vestige of kind of a a compass, a moral compass for John Lacey. But throughout his journey sort of slowly pushes him aside a little bit, which is a bit Heartbreaking.
2: There's an implication. I, I believe Dell mentions. Shout out to Dell, best character.
1: Uh, you like Del. I like Dell, <laughs> yeah. I
2: really, I really, you did him dirty. <laughs> he went out in a, a blaze of glory, yeah, but you yeah, did true. him so dirty. I loved it. <laughs> but um Dell says that uh I, I think it's Del says that Gray probably knows what you're up to, John. Uh and and you know, I went in too. And so there's that sense, and this is maybe what I was leaning on earlier, that um Gray knows that there's like a, a darkness within John. There's there's something bad there. And you know, we we cut to 10, 20 years later or whatever, and and Gray still has done nothing. Gray has done nothing to stop it John from building this criminal let him empire. Go on, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I'm curious about why Gray didn't step in if he is that that compass. Mm. Is it is it like fear of his brother? Is it that want for stability? Doesn't want. That's a good question, man. Boat? I mean,
1: it that was actually very deliberate. Um, that was actually there's a chapter that I actually added in later on as I wanted it to be clear enough where they're sitting by a fire and they're they're watching um the First Nations people sort of dance over in the distance and Gray mentions, you know, we need to treat these people as human beings and anyone who does anything wrong to them, like they're just the worst sort of person, you can never trust them. And why is he talking about that? You know, why is he saying that to his brother? Like, I think he very clearly knows, if not explicitly what's happening, he definitely knows something has, is going on with his brother. And your question is why doesn't he step in? Why doesn't he actually change his brother's mind? Well, I guess my question would be like would you? Cuz there's <laughs> I have a brother and you don't know, right? I have a brother. You know, we're all, we're we're adult men now, and so he makes choices. And you know, I don't always agree with everything he does with his own life. Like if I had a choice, I would, you know, force him to maybe do something a little bit differently, but he's his own person too. And you know, there's little degrees, right? And with all human relationships, you just let that little thing go. And then oh, this other little thing, you let that go. And then so on and so forth. I just think it's, I don't know. I don't know whether he would have said something. Would you have said something?
2: You
0: hope so, right?
2: I hope that I would do the right thing, whatever the right thing is, right? I mean, <laughs> what, we, we a po- covered- what a
0: political answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: there is no other answer I can give.
1: No, but like, dude, we, we, like, we
2: covered. Gray is yeah. like,
1: he's got, a, he's got his perspective wife. Like he's got this business. Imagine he were to tear down his brother. Like he'd lose a lot of the things that he really wants for his life. I mean, he's kind of maybe selfishly motivated. Maybe it's just too, too much conflict. Maybe he doesn't think about it as a question as to whether he should do something. I don't know. I don't know why he doesn't, but um, I think he should do something. But I don't know whether I'd do anything different. If I'm being completely honest, I would want to hope I would, but I've never been in that sort of desperate situation thinking about all the factors that um, Gray has. I,
0: I, I think it's also maybe that the three of us who deal with words a lot would really hope that our explanation of our concerns would be enough to sway them to make the choice that we want them to make, maybe. Is that, yeah,
1: have they, I mean, I'm sure there've been disagreements in your life with people who you love. You've probably had people in your life who you love, who have made choices where you're like, Oh, why are you yeah. listening to that particular person speak on that particular issue? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the political atmosphere of our world in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of times where I've wanted to say to people who I really love, like, are you sh- Are you sure? <laughs> And then sometimes I do, and then it always ends up in a fight, and it always ends up with argument, and you always feel mm. gross, but you should. Can I, can I tell you a, a
2: personal anecdote you yeah. know, on the show, which terrible is a terrible anecdote. thing to do as a professional Why? radio Why is that bad? Man. No. It's too crazy. late. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking.
1: But oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I,
2: I, I remember, and I, I don't remember the name of, of the politician, but my mother, you know, she was sending me – this is during the um, – the, the the Black Lives Matter movement, so it was a pretty big issue at the time, and you know she was sending me an article about the, the the victim who who sparked the whole the whole thing, and how he was a criminal, and how you know even if there should be this movement, it shouldn't be on the back of this particular human being. Yeah, and I did some research about the politician who who had written this article mm-hmm. and I said, mom, this person has been on every side of the political spectrum. They're known for these, this, this, and this controversy. They're getting their sources from these other people who are also known to be hacks. And she said, oh, I didn't know any of that. And I was like, yeah, you didn't. <laughs> Cause you didn't like research, you know, and, and those sorts of conflicts, it's difficult
0: to, to tangle with. It goes both ways as well. It does. In that, like, I've, I've, you know, been and stayed at houses of diehard Republican voters in the deep south of the United States and had wonderful conversations with them about why they're voting for policies that are explicitly against their ideas. And it's like a lot a lot of that is definitely that people don't really take the time to listen to those things as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
1: But those those conversations are so important. It's really awesome to have those moments where you do actually say something, you know, mm. and I've, I've had those moments where you come away and you're like, oh, I really should have, mm-hmm. I should have stood up for that. Like, oh God, I didn't like that. I just nodded along to that just to make peace, right? I know there have been times where I have just nodded along to make peace and I hope, you know, I'm I'm doing that less and less, but I just, I have sympathy for people who end up doing that,
0: I guess. I guess yeah. that's great. I don't know. I think I think that's one of the fun things about the way that their relationship is portrayed in the book is that like it sort of makes you yearn for that action. And that is a part of reading the text differently for each person. Is what what action do you yearn for in their inaction?
1: Mm. That's well put. Um, yeah. You do you want Grey to take a step. You want him you want him to take a chain and wrap it around Lacey's neck and then just lash him to a tree somewhere, right? And just say, Hey. <laughs> You stay in here until we figure out what the heck is wrong in you to make you do all these horrible things. It would be nice. It would have changed the course of the whole novel. Um, you kind of want Grey to do that. But again, we're fallible human beings. I just yeah, It's just the way it goes sometimes, unfortunately, I think.
2: I guess I, I wanted to ask about uh, about kind of the structure of your writing. Mm. Um, you've made some particularly bold choices here. The way that you, you title the acts of your story in particular, mm-hmm. they're reminiscent of some of my favorite Western movies like uh, 310 to Yuma or The Good and the Bad and the Ugly where the titles mm. kind of – they kind of give away what's going to happen by the end of the story but are not yeah. uh, descriptive of what the, the act will be about. Um, my favorite example of this is the wide and destructive path of Gilbert Delaney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the first couple of chapters is him just like, I'm just a guy with my family having a having a great time and being a lover human being. You don't know how it's gonna connect with the end. yeah. um, could, could you tell me how you built up the confidence to spoil the ending of your book on the title <laughs> cover?
1: <laughs> oh, man. um, yeah, there's lots of, you know, I'll. there's lots of probably different things you'll have to rein me in if I go off on tangents with this. It's too um there was. That. <laughs> it was okay. It was not, not the original title. The original title was just Lacey. It was just going to be big Lacy written over the front of it. But in discussions with my agent who is long suffering, but I never get a title past her. So every single book I've written, I've said, oh, this is the title. And I've always wanted to get one by her, but I, was, I thought this one Lacy, like it's punchy, it's got, you know, big letters. It could be really cool. A book about lingerie. That is yeah. exactly <laughs> what she said. <laughs> he said it sounds like it's going to be a romance, period romance sort of thing, maybe like doilies or something like that. So then I took, because the first chapter was already called The Death of John Lacey, so I took that and gave that away right up front. But then starting with his death, uh, I guess it was a little bit of my way of saying it's a, he does die, you know, this, this horrible part of our history, he is dead at the beginning. Um, I certainly didn't want it to be about... I guess, will he or won't he? I wanted it to be a kind of inevitability. And then my favourite type of stories to to watch on TV or to read, I always like trying to put together the puzzle of how we got there. Um, mm-hmm. So there were a few moments in the story where I tried to make it feel like he might die in that moment and then sort of pull back a little bit from that. But, yeah, the structure of the story was really interesting. I started out writing uh, the the John Lacey section, so the conquest of John Lacey where he he's sort of his rise to power in the goldfields of Ballarat. And then after that, I thought, well, this is the most evil person I've ever written. And at the moment I'd written that, it was just going to be that and it was going to be maybe a novella or something. I thought that's that's very dark and like not a nice place to be in. And I wanted to see if I could have some characters – in the same sort of situation as as John Lacey, but people who were standing up to him. So if I presented evil, I also wanted to present a type of hope. Um, and that's where the rest of the characters came in. But when I was writing it, I had no idea what the structure would be. I I toyed once with shifting timelines. I don't know whether you've seen the movie Dunkirk. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, like, there's one timeline that's sort of over, over weeks and then there's one that's over days and one's over hours. So I was trying to, it just was very confusing. So I ended up just presenting it in the most straightforward manner, which is just in order, mostly in order of, um, the timeline. Then starting with, um, John Lacey's death and you wondering what had gone on to get him into that uh, circumstance.
0: Yeah. I guess like one of the things that I talk about often with thrillers is like the flavor of the page turner. What is that element that gets you turning the page? And I think that there's, there's kind of two in this book. There's one is the sort of destructive inevitability that those chapter titles give you where you're like, well, okay Gilbert Delaney if you, if you insist as you get further and further towards the destructive path but the other one is the sort of pacing that's lent by your choice to omit quotations for speech mm. and hardly any time spent on reminding the re- reader who's speaking mm-hmm. I guess talk to me a bit about that choice because it reminded me a lot of something that you'd see in metafiction where you have like multiple narrators like trading voices mm. that's really
1: interesting um Can I say that it never struck me as I chose to do that very early on into writing this because it's just a style, honestly, that I really love. Um, Cormac McCarthy does it. um, uh, Richard Flanagan does it. Tim Winton does it. You know, there are these authors who I really admire. Uh, Rowan Wilson does it um, because it's always felt to me, writing to me is always about trying to strip back as much as possible to get to the core of the story and not to put on anything in there that isn't absolutely vital to the story. And so, um, yeah, I had a go at taking out the the dialogue marks, the quotation marks, as you say. And it, to me, it just feels like it's more it's more etched in stone, like it feels ancient somehow. Um, and it was also interesting too, I had the read of the Geraldry letter, which was what Ned Kelly wrote as like a sort of a treatise on the government and everything. Um, It was like a six-page letter he'd he'd written. But in there, his punctuation was really lacking as well. Like he wasn't as maybe educated as, uh, you know, people in those times with all the journals I'd read as well. There is a kind of lack of that stuff. So kind of wanted to emulate that as well. But yeah, it's all about stripping back. It's about stripping back and making it try to be as blunt, I guess, as possible. Because when I read that sort of stuff, it just feels blunt to me. It's not trying to be pretty. It's just quite uh, raw, maybe would be the word.
0: It's also like if it's the first time you've come across this particular style, it's kind of threatening too. Where you're like, <laughs> oh, geez, oh how, how am I supposed to read this? You kind of have to figure it out, even though on some level you do know. Yeah, did you? I'm actually
1: interested because my job would be, and the thing I set out to do is if, Without quotation marks, you should still not have trouble figuring out who's speaking and when. So it was a real mission to actually make sure it was okay. It still flowed the way I needed to flow. It shouldn't stop people from enjoying the book. I was in a band a long time ago and I used to play, it was like a punk ska band and I played a five string bass.
0: Also, can I just pause you for a moment and say somehow it does not surprise me in any way that a punk ska bass player wrote this book.
1: (laughs) Really? Okay. (laughs) I'm on brand. I'm
0: on brand. Um,
1: But I used to use that fifth string as a kind of easy crutch. It was easy. So when it was heavy, I would just play the bottom B string. And then um, my guitarist said, uh, you've got this beautiful Fender Jazz over here. It's a four string. Can you change all the songs so it would be fitting on the four string? And so I had to restrict myself. And it actually, I think, made me more creative and more the songs more interesting. The sound was better. So I've always thought about that. You know, if you can restrict yourself in doing something, you know, what can be produced by having less you know, what sort of creative sort of ideas can you have with less? Um, So there's a little bit of that. It's so
0: interesting to think of like speech marks as something that you could take out to have less because really it doesn't change that much about the text, but you still have to work around it in a way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's restrictive and you do have to be very careful about, okay, well, I really do need to make sure I say he said here, the little dialogue tags, otherwise people's flow will be interrupted. It's easier with quotation marks to keep people's keep who's speaking very clear without them. You do have to be really, it makes you think it forces you to think, I think more yeah, thoroughly through what you're writing. Yeah.
2: So we're, we're talking about all this, this cool grammar stuff. I, I really wanted to say that when you described your language as blunt, uh, that's the term that I want to use when describing your
1: text, but I thought it would be too rude. So I'm glad that you said it first. I <laughs> think <laughs> it's fine. Like it just, it's just hitting a nail with a hammer. Like it's I don't, I completely agree. I don't want to try to get that nail in there any other way. Like there's just there's a way you gotta speak. Sometimes you will got to be blunt. It's just the way I like to read and the way I like to um no, I agree. Write.
2: I, I think that partic particularly talking about how you've you've removed all the he said she said, which means that you don't have to spend time defining exactly what's going on. Um, but there, there is another crassness that I wanted to address with you, because I noticed while thumbing through the novel that there are quite a few times when a character farting is used to show how comfortable they are with present company, that they can let their guard down. Now, I Edwin this. farts. This is my, was one of my
1: favorite interviews ever, by the way. Let's keep going. Edwin, <laughs> Great. Hold on. I'm so not done the question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: Edwin farts in the First Nations camp in the first act. Uh, Grey farts with his brother in the second. How did Letting One Loose become the universal language of ease in the death of John Lacey?
1: I love this so much. There's so much about this. All right, I need to talk. This is going to be a nine-hour podcast now. Um, Sign me up. All right. So the first part was that when I was in 2004, so I would have been 20 years old, I watched a film called Shaun of the Dead. Um, One of my favorite films. I went and saw it in the cinema It was huge. It was the start of the Cornetto trilogy. I love that series and I love that film especially. But there is a scene right at the start, I don't know whether you remember, where it's uh, Nick Frost's character farts and it's this moment of intimacy between the two. And then later on as he's turning into a zombie and he's saying goodbye, they bring that same little exchange up. And he turned, and it was in the commentary track. I remember Simon Pegg talking about it. They wanted to turn a fart into this sentimental, sweet, like it might bring tears to people's eyes, but it's still a, a fart. I found that amazing. So I always had that in the back of my mind. And then there was a, an exchange between Edwin and Ernst. Um, Ernst is his son. So Edwin is describing how he loves um, his waterung mistress, but he doesn't love his own wife. And he was just saying it as bluntly as that. I love this one. I don't love this one. And it was actually an early reader who picked that up and said, that's a bit lazy. Like I'm just telling something to the audience It's a little lazy. So it was up to me to go and think about how can I show that Edwin feels more physically comfortable in with one relationship than with the other? How do I show that strain? And it just delighted me so much to think of that fart and to bring that back as this. I'm so glad you picked that up. Um, when you put these little things in, you never know whether readers will actually um, find those little parts but that you notice that so it makes my heart real warm man like i'm just so happy yeah, yeah.
2: Look, i'm sure i'm not the only person so you've made us very happy us fart lovers you know <laughs>
1: we're just <laughs> it's fun though, right? like, to, to turn this to turn yeah like you say it is an intimate thing like you do who do you feel comfortable around to pass wind in front of and it's kind of crass it just made me laugh i don't know yeah <laughs> Yeah, I just, yeah, I really love that you picked that up.
0: No, fair enough. Yeah, I guess I wanted to go into spoilers a bit now because we did have a a, a few sticking points towards the end of the book that we we just couldn't figure a way Uh to ask without getting into it. So Totally okay. Spoiler warning from this point on. Let's go. Herds has been talking with me a lot about how religion provides a convenient out for the moral choices towards the end of the book. How easily do you think modern audiences will accept the religious subtext, especially with how late in the game you introduce Father Gilbert?
1: Gilbert himself is an interesting guy. Um, And yeah, he does come in late to the story. So it was a bit of a challenge to try to make people care about him quickly because he's not a main character up until like the last third of the book. And then the main action kind of centers around him for the whole last third of the book. Just, you know, to be completely to be completely real, it is how I think about the world. Like, I have a type of faith myself. Good fiction, I think, to me at least, the ones I like to read the most are investigating that kind of, what does it mean to be a good person? And I think that characters who often actually examine that are the ones who have a type of moral obligation. And to me, a priest or a minister, I think, really does fit that mold very well. The other part with Gilbert, though, as well, that I really found to be interesting was that he also, his talk about um, his demons sort of plaguing him, I think is a really interesting way of discussing kind of the anxieties that we have in our modern day as well. And so, yeah, he does use this kind of religious language to coat around because he has a type of obsessive mind, which a lot of people actually think the Apostle Paul had as well in the Bible where he says, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. And a lot of people point to that little section. Uh, I think it's in Romans where he's talking about, like he has this kind of obsessive mind where he keeps on doing stuff he doesn't really want to do. I think that Gilbert for me is really that kind of person where he has these things that he wants to be doing, but he just can't bring himself to act on it in a brave way. Like he wants to be brave, but he can't be. And to me, that's just a very sympathetic person. Like I feel like that a lot in my life. Like I've, I have often find myself in situations where you think, you're like, I just, I really want to be this kind of person. I see myself as a desire to be this brave kind of good person who can love his family well and make good choices. And, you know, I'm a teacher. I want to teach well. I want to, you know, have this legacy where I'm actually helping the world and helping people. But I often fail and I often mistake and I often go on TikTok and scroll for three hours, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's to me that pull between what I want to do and what I don't want to do. I think it's really exemplified in that religious sort of way um, through Gilbert. Um, But I also had a friend who was um, very close to Gilbert in his, he actually had a very severe type of obsessive compulsive disorder and it was sort of coated in this religious sort of thing. Like he would have to, he would have to pray Um, 50 times before he put a sock on and he would have to get the prayer exactly right. And he would have to have the exact intonation. And it was very similar to um, obsessive compulsive sort of hand washing and things like that. So I wanted to sort of put that in there as well to show that even good people can have a lot of difficulty being good, I guess. It's a good question though, man. Like it is, it is a, yeah, I don't know. Like, do you feel like there's a lot of people who think religiously or, you know, have a spiritual side in Australia. I think there's still a few, but yeah, it is. It's less and less typical now, I would say for sure.
2: Yeah. I think there's more diversity it's in general. Like there's definitely a, a large number of people in Australia who are spiritual in that sense, who are Christian. Like my, you know, my, my family is Christian and they raised me like that. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. So even if you're, even if you're not now, there's a type of language there that's kind of shared, I guess. Um, And, you know, I would hope that even, even people who aren't, um, you know, Christian or Anglican or, or even have a spiritual side, I hope that they can, they can sort of sympathize with a person wanting to do the right thing. I think everyone can sort of um, hopefully sympathize with a character like that.
2: I guess what, what I'm curious about Father Gilbert's moral quandaries around the law and justice you know, it all drives the action up until the, the final page of the book. Yeah. There was a sense that his faith renders him exempt from the the bloody fury that other characters suffer from. Yeah. Um, was this a
1: question that you were intending to leave open for your readers? As in, do I feel like he can kind of, he gets away with a little bit more or that he's he, in a- He
2: does a bit. Like, he doesn't get shot, you know. <laughs> Pretty much every other main character gets shot, set on fire. Yeah. Thrown
1: into a ditch. And he is fine, right? It's an interesting question though, man, because I I don't see that as a good thing. Like it is a good thing, but I certainly don't see being shot as punishment. Like to me, it was important to show him as he really was. And so yeah, in those final moments, he kind of, Joe just pushes him out of the way. And Joe is the one who kind of rescues himself in a way. He doesn't need the religious person there to help him. He just needs him to get out of the way a little bit. Um, to me, he does not, um, I think the damage that he, that he sustains is not necessarily physical. Um, I think that he is, I think he does come to a place in the finish though, where he lets some things go that I think he was perhaps trying to control too hard. Um, so yeah, there is a type of maybe redemption. I didn't want to show him though. Um, being like all, everything's fine, you know, because it's not fine. Um, but for him in himself, I think he feels a sense of like he's finally being that type of person doing that right thing. Yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting take, man. Like I didn't really think about it that desperately. It was just an action like he wouldn't, he wouldn't know how to shoot a gun. He wouldn't know how to stand up in front of bullets, you know. Mm-hmm. Joe was much more in that, had grown up under the wing of Ernst, had sort of developed that sense of like, bravery in that respect like he just got down and like screamed a little bit I don't know I just it was less to do with um him avoiding punishment it was more to do with him kind of being nervous yeah
0: I, I think it's interesting as well going back to your point earlier about how you sort of like wear the character skin to make the decisions for how the novel flows in that there are certain ways that you could like imprint a, a judgment in the way that the book ends on those characters actions but at the same time sometimes reality just lets people I guess get away with things mm-hmm. and there is an interesting question in that in how that relates to religion in society when so much of the book has spent time talking about religion and the law and how those concepts are associated like again it, it opens a question. Which is really fun with the style that you write. There's been so
1: many different people throughout history who have you know coded what they're doing in religion and then have been very, very controlling and mm. all under the guise of discipline, all under the guise of like they they're, they're the most moral and kind people and they're they're beating people into submission but they're doing it for those people's own good. I don't like hitting you that sort of um, religious control but you know the more, I grow, I think as a person, I'm finding more and more like you just, in order to love a person, you really do need to, to accept them, I guess, as they are and not how you want them to be. And, you know, I just, I think there's absolutely a role for justice and there's a role for discipline and there's a role where people are very wayward in society. And there's an interesting counterpoint between how much justice do you bring versus mercy Um, Mm -hmm. and they can sometimes relate, you know, sometimes you need the justice, sometimes you need to be merciful, but it's, it's really, it's really, he's to me, at least Gilbert is scared and he's trying his best to control and he's doing his best to do the right thing too, but that's not entering his mind. He's not sort of, he's just trying to control situations. And it's when he sort of says, I'm going to let things be what they are. I think that's where he finds a sense of peace about him. I hope. He's pretty he's yeah, I find Gilbert really interesting. And and some it's very interesting too some feedback I get some people don't like him. Some people think that he is not as strong a character as some of the other characters. But then, about half the readers I get, they're like, "I loved Gilbert; he was my favourite part of the book." It's, it's very interesting people's readings on it.
0: I think, uh, I, I think, I think there's definitely something to unpack with characters like that who who do get that split reaction in that sense because it it, it often tends to happen. I think when people have to think harder about a character, like if mm. you know, like we we love metafiction on this show. We love metafictional mysteries, and we often find that metafictional mysteries that we absolutely treasure kind of get slammed in a lot of reviews because a lot of the complexity kind of overwhelms people. Yeah. I don't I don't know. Like, I, I guess I didn't have that same conflict in reading Gilbert, mm-hmm. but it is curious to me that, like, if your reaction is split there, sometimes that can kind of be a sign that you've asked a more interesting question maybe. Maybe.
1: Like, do you, I think his religion can get in the way of people liking him. I think people yeah. have it's such a personal question for people and it's such a reactive emotional thing that people have towards religions and institutions, especially that it can be quite, I instantly don't like, I think people read Ernst, who's, I think sympathetic too, but he is also a very violent person. Um, He sort of grows up to be quite a violent man, really. Mm. But I think people like him more than they like Gilbert.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. I guess the thing that I wanted to wrap up on while we're sort of in spoilers territory, because I don't I don't necessarily want to sweep this out from under people's feet but you've spoken uh, several points about the way that films have inspired you yeah a big inspiration for me yeah I want to know is there a, a sneaky film reference in the death of John Lacey that nobody has caught that nobody has like mentioned to you yet and either either can you tell us about it or can you give a clue to our audience <laughs> to go hunt it down for
1: themselves oh, it's so good I'm gonna be real I don't off the top of my head I can't remember anything specific beyond uh-huh. that. Very specific Daniel Plainview. There's lots of little references. There's actually references to my other book, Snake Mm. Island. There's actually a character in this novel who has the same last name as a character from Snake Island. So his uh, descendant ends up being a main character in Snake Island, which no one's picked up on, but that's okay. I guess (laughs) listeners here can go and hunt that one down. Uh I'm are you building the
2: uh, the multiverse or the- The the franchise, yeah, 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 yeah. the the franchise of all your books being connected. Yeah,
1: it was more. You know what though? That's actually a wink at Tarantino, right? He does that. Yeah, yeah. He often has um, characters in glorious bastards. You know, would have the same share a last name with someone from Reservoir Dogs, and you know, I like all those little little winks and nods. I think are really fun. I originally wanted to be a filmmaker when I'd left school. And so film and TV um, now is a real reference point for me for things that I really find moving. 2007 had There Will Be Blood, but in that year they also had two other films I think really infused this one. had uh, No Country for Old Men mm-hmm. and they had um, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which are three beautiful westerns. Um, so I think those three would really... Um, infuse this in a, in a way. But yeah, nothing specific though. That's a really good question. I kind of wish now in hindsight, I'd put something in there to answer that question.
0: But <laughs> so <next> maybe, time? <laughs> maybe he still did and just won't tell us because he's giving someone the opportunity wholesale, you know? It's the
1: great mystery. It's, all <laughs> it's right. the great mystery. Yeah. You'll never find it. There is one, <laughs> there is one part in there where, um, can I share this? There was one part where there, it. it's, it's raining in, in Ballarat and it's they're getting just absolutely soaked. And one of them says, geez, it's it's wet or it's raining. And the other one says, it's not wet until the water finds the hole in your ass, which was a line I loved. But it came from my brother-in-law. He is in the army and he's, he heard someone say that to him while they were at bush doing some sort of training yeah. Exercise, <laughs> and I thought, man, that's just such a perfect line. So that's a reference to real um, life. Uh, that's yeah, my brother-in-law in there.
0: All right. Well, I suppose we should uh, wrap wrap this up. Ben, it has been an absolute treat having you on the show, and the death of John Lacey has been an amazing read to kick off 2023. So thank you so much for putting in all the work on this book and sitting down to chat about it with us.
1: Oh, it's so it's been a pleasure, man. You guys have some awesome questions. Hey, like I got to lift my game as an interviewer, <laughs> I think. Like you make all these links and been awesome i really appreciate you guys
0: no worries i mean listen i love listening to uh, burgers beer and books on words and nerds <laughs> so like it's really really fun getting to turn the tables on you here
1: yeah i well, appreciate it man you've done you've done your work i feel exhausted now i had to think so hard You <laughs> are gonna go have a sleep i think
2: that's what we're going for so it's it's all working out
1: <laughs> very good
0: all righty we're talking with author ben hobson about his latest novel the death of john Lacey, which is out with alan and unwin here in australia thanks to them and abc radio nationals the bookshelf for linking herds and me up copies this is your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3 we'll catch you around stay tuned